this podcast may have explicit content. It also has this implicit request. If you follow me on Twitter, why not follow the gist at Slate Gist? It's Thursday, December 5th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. UNESCO, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Technology Education and Design Organization. That's also a TED Talk. Anyway, they have a list of different festivals and rites and practices specific to areas. And they say that read this list and you will understand culture. They call the list the list of intangible cultural heritage. Though once you write it down on a list, it becomes kind of tangible. No? Anyway, the Belgium Carnival of Alst is a three-day event in the city of Alst. But alas... Alst did not last. This year, during the supposedly culturally significant festival, an unusual float got most of the attention. A carnival float at a parade in Belgium has caused outrage for displaying giant caricatures of Jews sitting on bags of money. Oi. So as an apology, the leaders of Alst, sensing that this year's inclusion on the list would be the last of Alst, simply said, oh, I'm fired? No, I'm not fired. I quit. That's right. They are petitioning for removal from the list. They don't want to be told not to have pretty vehemently anti-Semitic floats. So there is some question whether a piece of culture can ask off the list. And really, if you're going to go to Mardi Gras, do you want to go to, I don't know, New Orleans, maybe Brazil, maybe? No, you want to go to Belgium in February. That's where you want to go. So poor Alst will not be able to remain on the list with such other entries as yoga, coffee, or the idea and practice of organizing shared interests in cooperatives, which is the cultural heritage of Germany. They will not be included on the list along with the Mongolian practice of camel coaxing. That's right. If Mongolians coax their camels with any culturally insensitive promises, I too expect to see them barred. Also on the list, and this one is credited to Cyprus, Croatia, Spain, Greece, Italy, Morocco, and Portugal, the Mediterranean diet. That's right. Everything they eat is on the list, the list of intangible cultural heritage. If it's intangible, how do you eat it? I don't know, but the Mediterranean diet is on the list. Traditional hand puppetry of Egypt, also on the list. Observing the sun in Pakistan, also on the list. I have to say, When I looked over this list that I hadn't heard of, so I guess it's the we're on meth of cultural lists, this anti-Semitic festival. When I looked over this list of hundreds of and hundreds of traditions, they all have like a 10 minute video. I mean, you got to see this lad dancing of Romania. It's not to be believed. And of all these cultural traditions and to think it was only in this one festival in this Fakakta Belgian town that you get anti-Semitism feel pretty good. It made me feel pretty positive to be a member of this species. Did it make me feel as good as, say, the Feast of the Holy Forty Martyrs in Stip, North Macedonia? Let's not go crazy. But I feel at least as heartened as after a rousing volley of Tsiatsista, poetic dueling of Cyprus. On the show today, I spiel about that time that Joe Biden threatened to settle a voter's hash. The Malarkey Express gets its Irish up. But first, Bina Venkatraman 
had a fascinating career in journalism. Then she went on to serve in the Obama administration as a senior advisor on climate change. She went on to lead the global policy initiatives at the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT. Now she runs the Boston Globe editorial page. Along the way, I guess she kept focus on the important things to focus on. That is the topic of her book, The Importance of Long-Term Goals Over Short-Term Distractions. The Optimist's Telescope, Thinking Ahead in a Reckless Age, Bina Venkatraman, up next. What does Jeff Bezos's giant clock stuck inside the earth, a glitter bomb, and NBA load management theory have in common? They're all, when you think about it, an example of foresight and putting off the pleasures of the present for a little bit of rewards in the future. And they're all at least touched upon in the book, The Optimist's Telescope, Thinking Ahead in a Reckless Age. It is written by Bina Venkatraman, who, I mean, I think has just about the best title. She was the former director of global policy initiatives at the Broad Institute of Harvard and MIT. And I usually don't like reading out long, long titles, but that's an impressive one, right? They say Harvard and you're hooked and then they say MIT and the boom is lowered. She is the editorial page editor at the Boston Globe. Hello, Bina. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. So I appreciated how the book was organized and what the topics were that you touched upon. And I know it started with you, uh, somewhat of an expert in Lyme disease, getting Lyme disease and putting off in the present what you should have done, and it really hurt you in the future. I get that that was the proximate cause. But was what was driving you something bigger about society, something larger that you kept seeing every day beyond that spot on your leg and the Lyme disease that you had to deal with? Absolutely. So I feel we're living in a time where we need to think ahead more than ever. And part of my own experience with that was not just having this tick bite that I ignored recklessly and later turned into a problem, but was working in the White House where I was working with companies and communities and trying to share with them some of the predictions about how climate change is changing the world, changing the risk of wildfire, risk of floods, possibly affecting the supply chains of major food companies in a big way. And while I was doing that work, I found it often frustrating that I would talk to leaders within companies or mayors of cities and they would say, that's great. I'd love to start planning ahead for that problem, but it's so far down the road and my constituents or my stakeholders, my shareholders, my board only cares about what's going on right now. It's really hard to think ahead like this. And that experience in my sort of work and day-to-day life paired with this realization that we're living longer than previous generations of human beings, you know, kids who were born in 2100 will possibly live on average in the developed world to 100. We know so much more about how we affect the future, whether that's how our pollution is changing the climate of the future and on the planet, or how long our nuclear waste will be radioactive and harmful to creatures or people. All of that kind of creates this, I think, sort of obligation and 
real demand on us to be able to think ahead just for our own sake, if we want to plan for our own retirement for a much longer life, or if we want to be responsible ancestors to future generations, if we want to think about our kids and grandkids, our nieces and nephews, and what kind of world they're going to inhabit. So first of all, I find it heartening that someone who held the title of Senior Advisor for Climate Change in the Obama White House just made a reference to people living on this earth in the year 2200. I mean, if you do the math, right? Say kids born in the year 21. If they live to be 100, you're predicting we'll still be going on as a species in the year 2200. Am I right about that? Oh, yeah. I, nice. As much as I <laughs> take seriously the predictions about climate change, then they're certainly dire. And that said, I think what we're talking about is massive changes to the civilizations and communities as we've known them, changes to our coastlines, changes to borders as we think about refugee crises. But we're not talking about the end of the species, at least not in sort of the near, let's say, near-term future of the next century or so. I really think that human beings will survive. The question is, will human civilization as we've known it thrive? Will we be able to live as we've lived? Will we be able to eat the foods we like to eat? Will we be able to go to the places we love to go and enjoy? But yeah, I'm not one of the people who thinks that humanity is about to end. You know, unless you tell me there's an asteroid on a pretty certain collision course with Earth that has the capacity to destroy us, I'm going to put my money on people still being around in the year 2100. Yes. And I think climate change is pretty much shot throughout the book, even when you go five pages without talking about it. If there is a general reference to future planning or the failures of institutions to do so, at least in my reading, I always was thinking of climate change. But I also thought of a couple of maybe complicating factors like this. I don't know if you read Nathaniel Rich's piece in the New York Times Magazine and later turned into a book, The Decade We Lost Climate Change. And it was basically about George H.W. Bush's White House. We could have done something about it then, and we didn't. And I talked to him on this show, and he acknowledges that there are plenty of chances from that point to do something about it. And, you know, Clinton did a little, Bush, the son, did less, the Obama White House tried to do more, Republicans in Congress always getting in the way. But that was an inflection point. But my question to him, and I think this is a really complicating thing, we can and should, A, do everything that we can now, which might not be enough because either we or the people came before us failed. Okay, so that's an A. And B, we should acknowledge the mistakes we made. But if you go back and you say, you know, climate change was a big one and we whiffed on it. Well, did it really seem bigger? Did it really seem societally reorganizing as much as, say, acid rain, as much as the hole in the ozone layer? So my point is that we have had these impending natural disasters for as long as I've been alive and before when overpopulation outstripping the food supplies was a big worry in the scientific community. So is it really a failure to plan or was it just that this one was so much bigger than the amount of planning that we'd gotten by on for so long? I think it's a combination of both. So When you look at a problem like the ozone layer, where people already understood what the risk or harm of that could be, people were getting skin cancer, for example, in the developed world, in, you know, countries like the United States, which have a lot of influence in sort of international response to global problems. And then you look at the ease of the solution to that, which was essentially banning chlorofluorocarbons, right, from products. And it was both a relatively easy solution and an easy problem to imagine and wrap 
people's heads around. That's not to discount that it wasn't a big deal that countries came together in what was then known as the Montreal Protocol to basically decide that we wanted to tackle the problem of the ozone layer. But with climate change, we faced what I call a sort of failure of imagination for a long time on this issue because a lot of the impacts couldn't be seen. They weren't clear and present the way they are becoming now. And I would say still to some extent, we're we're not experiencing sort of the day-to-day of climate change in every corner of the world. Right now, there have been, you know, devastating wildfires in California, for example. But I'm on the East Coast where winter has come along sort of as predicted as expected. It's snowing outside today. And so my day-to-day experience doesn't always allow me to fathom that the sea levels are rapidly rising, that the Arctic is melting. But there's also the complexity of addressing it, which is the fact that fossil fuels are sort of at the foundation of our whole economy around the world, and that replacing them is not as easy as taking an ingredient out of certain products. All of that is to say that for a long time, there have been a lot of entrenched interests as well that have sort of debated the science and sort of clouded the predictions around climate change. And part of that is because of the inertia of wanting to keep our economy running on the same fuels that have profited a few companies and a few people for a long time. So it's a much more complicated issue, I think, than some of these other, and I wouldn't call them natural disasters. I would call them sort of human-made disasters involving the environment of the past. But I do think it's really important to recognize now, and I think about this when I think about Nathaniel Rich's work, that We can wring our hands, but I'm not personally that much of a hand wringer. I'd like to learn from the lessons of the past what we can do better now. And it's not the case that the battle is lost on climate change. We're still able to do a lot to stop terrible things from happening. It's not like there's one moment at which we failed. So I think it's really important to remember that, that there's a lot of preparing we have to do. And every bit of emissions that we keep out of the atmosphere is going to make the world better for people in the future. I agree with all that, but I don't know that it falls into a framework of failing to plan ahead. There are so many of these potential cataclysms. This is the one potential cataclysm that became the actual cataclysm, but it wasn't that we didn't foresee it so much as the problem was just so much worse than we had the capacity to fight. Well, I would argue it is actually a failure to plan ahead because the capacity to fight it gets worse and worse over time, right? It would have been easier to address in many ways years ago. And the scientific predictions were robust. If you looked at the credible science, the science of climate change, the knowledge that this was a problem has been around for a long time. It's been known by experts. What's been lacking is the political will to address it. To create that kind of political will, we have to be able to imagine the future that is being predicted for us. We have to be able to imagine an alternate future And then we have to have the tools at hand to do something about it. And the tools like a carbon tax or cap and trade systems, those have been around and circulating for decades now. And it's quite possible that if we would have advanced some of those ideas earlier, that we would indeed be in a much better place when it comes to thinking about how the warming climate is going to affect our civilization. But we didn't because of the political system. When you talk to those mayors who would say, or leaders of smaller municipalities, oh, I'd love to plan, but... And then they talk about all the immediate concerns that they had. They weren't saying, I don't think your problem is real. I don't think a rainy day fund is necessary. I don't really see the necessity of it. They were saying that there are other considerations. And in 1999, the smartest people were right about climate change. We just had in America, not in Europe, but in America, a political system that 
refused to allow anything to be done about it. We planned, or I don't know who the we is, but the conception was out there. It wasn't a failure in terms of our conceptualization. It was a failure in our actualization. I think that's partially right. I think that if more citizens had said, this problem of the future really affects me, you know, there are examples of where societies do plan ahead for the future, where if you look at the history of this country, where we invested in free secondary education, and that sort of pivotal decision to do that and funding of that led to the basis of, you know, a a thriving economy in the 20th century in this country. And that was putting putting stock in and investment in and resources into policy that had a very long-term effect. So it's not the case that it's impossible within our political system to plan for the future. And one of the stories I write about in the Optimist Telescope is Richland County, South Carolina, where city county leaders basically decided they didn't want a reckless real estate development to go up in a floodplain because they were worried about future flood risks. And so they would use their zoning laws, they would fight a legal battle, which they succeeded in winning, to prevent that harmful real estate development from going up in a very high-risk area of a floodplain. And so when communities make decisions not to think ahead, to sort of put that real estate right in the zone of the wildfires or right in that coastal zone that's going to be flooding, you can't look at that as an inevitability that's just, oh, a byproduct of our political system that's just inherently short-term. It's the byproduct of decisions that we make and have made. Some of those are legacy systems in our political architecture. Sure, we're not necessarily going to be able to change the election cycle anytime soon. But even at at the corporate level, you know, I found examples of companies that are thinking ahead that are actually, you know, telling their shareholders that they're not going to be locked to the near-term share price. They're not going to just look at quarterly profits, that they, in fact, want to be building something of value with the company, whether it's growing into new markets or whether it's investing in R&D. And so what I was documenting in the book, to some extent, is what's possible, the art of the possible here, because I think a lot of people get into this mindset that it's just not possible for us in this country or it's not possible for us sort of in the West to think long term. And the reality is it's not easy, but that it is, in fact, possible. As I was reading the book, I had this, let's call it an insight, that oftentimes what you're doing is you're positing a choice, the ant and the grasshopper, a choice between living for the moment or planning for tomorrow. And it seems that it's a choice between a good choice and a bad choice. Let us make the good choice, maybe delay a little gratification instead of the bad choice, which is just do what feels good right now. But what I say is, I think so much of dealing with uh, modernity is not making the good choice over the bad choice. It's just making a choice versus no choice. We are asked to make so many choices. There are so many decision points. Every time you have to think of a new password to get on the very fundamental modems of communication, you're making a choice. If you had to, I don't know how you could do it, but if you measured the number of choices we're asked to make in 2019 versus what our grandparents were asked to make, I wouldn't doubt if it were 10 times as many. So I would think, and I don't know how we get there, the best way to reorder society is not so much to try to train humans or systems to make better choices, is to find a way to have us make fewer choices. And then I think all our choices will get better. Well, you make an interesting point because it is the case that we experience decision fatigue, right? That we have and we do. It is, I think, this idea that dates back to the paradox of choice, right? That's uh, this idea that we 
can't optimize everything. And what I try to do is really hone us in on those choices that are important. So one of the things that I discovered in looking at the cognitive science around this is that people will engage with the future if they feel like they have more of a choice or agency. They feel like there are decision points that actually have an influence on that future. And so I think it's important to sort of define what those are. Part of these exercises in imagination, one of these tools called perspective foresight, is to put yourself in a future situation where things are going really well or things have gone really poorly, and then ask yourself why and what are the decisions you could make that affect how you're able to respond in that future. And that, I think, is really clarifying for people because then it becomes more about what you do have the power to do, not just sort of passively receiving a prediction of a future scenario. So I do think that this idea, how can we be less tired of making choices or how do we make choices about the future when it seems so overwhelming? Part of it is to be able to imagine a future that we actually want and then to walk ourselves back from that and say, what are the things I can do to get myself as close to that future as possible, knowing I can't control, you know, a lot of the world or control a lot of the factors, but I can at least control sort of what my own ability is to respond or how my community responds or what I do to sort of be part of a better solution if you're thinking about something as big as climate change. Bina Venkatraman is a former journalist for the New York Times and the Boston Globe. She served in the Obama White House, taught at MIT, and now she is the she runs the Boston Globe editorial page and is the author of The Optimist's Telescope, Thinking Ahead in a Reckless Age. Thank you, Bina. Thanks so much, Mike. Joe Biden was in Iowa today chatting with a few voters in New Hampton. Oh, those Democratic fat cats always going to the Hamptons for fundraisers. After taking lots of questions. One last question. I would have asked, yeah, I know Donald Trump has distorted democracy, but how could you be elected president with such a clearly distorted microphone? Anyway, he was talking to this audience of mostly retirees and farmers, and then he gets asked a question by an 83-year-old retired farmer who self-identified this way. I'm kind of unique because I'm not a Republican. Then the guy starts in. Okay. Uh, I've got two problems with you. One is you're damn near as old as I am. You're too old for the job. I'm 83, and I know damn well I don't have the mental faculties I did when I was 30 years ago. Biden seemed eager to engage on that particular issue, but the cranky old farmer who's not as smart as he once was, attempted quite forcefully to prove that very thesis. We all know Trump uh, has been messing around in the Ukraine over there, holding their foreign aid for, for them to come up, saying they're going to investigate you. We know all about that. Okay, so, so far, in this part, this is called the predicate, Biden seems delighted a homespun way to describe what Trump did. And the Midwestern throat clear, which is reminiscent of a young Wilford Brimley, which is to say a pretty old Wilford Brimley, was a nice touch. But then the feller continued. But you, on the other hand, set your son over there to get a job and work for a gas company, but he had no experience with gas or nothing. And then the farmer, who by definition has to be salt of the earth, 
and has to be wise and in touch with the land. He said some things a little off mic, but I'll relay the words to you. He said, you sent your son over there in order to get access to the president. So you're selling access to the president just like he was. I think the farmer means Trump. He's comparing Biden to Trump being doing some dirty dealings in Ukraine. It's very confused. Biden says, no, no, I'm different from Trump. He patiently walks the citizen through what the real story was. He lays out a detailed timeline. No, he doesn't. He comes in hot. You're a damn liar, man. That's not true. And no one has ever said that. No one has heard that. No. You see it on the TV. No, I know you do. And by the way, that's why I'm not sedentary. I, don't, I get up and... and, and no, let, 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 let him go. Let him go. Look, the reason I'm running is because I've been around a long time and I know more than most people now. And I can get things done. That's why I'm running. And you want to check my shape on, let's do push-ups together here, man. Let's do, let's run. Let's do whatever you want to do. Let's take my pizza. You're a damn liar. Now, how do we get from there to here? How do we get to, let's take an IQ test? I don't think that's fair. I mean, maybe this farmer didn't have someone to play the radio. I make sure the television, excuse me, make sure that someone had the record player on at night. Make sure that he heard words. You know, a kid coming from a very poor school, a very poor background, will hear four million fewer words spoken by the time they get there. Anyway, digression, that makes no sense. Back to what I like to call horrible microphone theater. I did not on any occasion, and no one has ever said it. Not I didn't once. say you were doing anything wrong. I you said, said I set up my son to work in an oil company. Isn't that what you said? I get your words straight, Jack. Oh, Biden said Jack. When Biden says Jack, there's no going back. It, lo- it looks, it looks like you don't have any more backbone than Trump does when you're. Any other questions? Yeah. I'm not voting for you. Well, I knew you weren't, man. You think I thought you'd stand up and vote for me? You're too old to vote for me. <laughs> The voter waves his hand. Uh, he forget it. He's, Biden's a lost cause. And Biden, just he just picked on the poor guy. I mean, I guess in Biden's defense, it's not often that he as a 77-year-old gets a chance to say, hey, sit down, grandpa. But he takes it. When confronted with the 3% of the U.S. population older than him, Biden goes all ageist. This was not a fun, feisty moment, as some people are portraying it as. Because this guy was not a plant. He was not a provocateur. He's just a citizen who was wrong. But you know, a lot of citizens are wrong. And maybe one of the things that our next president should do is to educate the citizenry. It was an opportunity to set the record straight. Push-ups, IQ test. How about leg wrestling and squat thrusts? I mean, are we electing a president here or recasting the part played by Lloyd Bridges on that episode of Seinfeld? Yeah, that's it. It's go time. Let's see you lift that. Mr. Man of Come on, really... come on. Pump it. All right. Yeah, wrong attitude. You're not bringing that trash into my house. There. All right. Step aside, string bean. I'll show you. I'm going to take it up a notch. Do you remember when that benighted woman asserted to John McCain that Barack Obama was a Muslim and McCain threatened to dropkick her into tomorrow screaming, you pissed off the wrong sailor, Missy? No, he didn't do that, did he? We respect the fact that he calmly explained to the woman that she was wrong. Biden, he just showed his Irish and lashed out the malarkey, always the malarkey, beset on all sides by malarkey. 
You know what he didn't do? He didn't use the moment to advance any part of his agenda or even his persona. Challenge an 83-year-old farmer with some weird ideas to an IQ test? I think the results are in. And Biden failed. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader not only produces the gist, he promises to knock you into tomorrow if you keep it up, bucko. Christina DeJosa, gist producer, she's ready to serve you up a knuckle sandwich. And as a beverage, she's thinking of opening up a can of whoop-ass over what you said, fella. The gist. Listen here, pally. After that IQ test and maybe a quick round of LSAT logic games, I'm going to challenge you to a caber toss and a series of chin-ups. I'm serious. I'm serious as a grand mal seizure here, friend. Lights out. I'll put you on the 1120 to Dozeville, Aloysius, and there's no transfer at Take Back Junction if you get my meaning, chief. We copacetic? I thought so. Vote for me. Hope and dreams. Oompa-dapa-doo-poo. And thanks for listening. <laughs>